few weeks, particularly, are gonna, you know, are all abstract theological. Um, just, just hang with us here um, because Paul's going to get there. But Romans chapter five, and again, we're going to dive in really into the doctrine of original sin this morning, and and look at the the what the scriptures are really kind of the the foundational passage for our understanding of original sin and the result of of Adam's fall and how it affects us. Um, Recall that the book of Romans is an exposition of Romans 1, 16 and 17. That's the thesis statement. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we have seen in this that the wrath of God against sin, chapter 1, 2, and 3, first part of chapter 3, this gospel entails the wrath of God against sin. And then Paul moved to the righteousness of God revealed by faith, chapter 4, excuse me, received by faith. And into chapter 5, we looked at justification by faith in Abraham, the Old Testament. We looked at justification by faith in regards to suffering, uh, what it means kind of in relation to the ongoing Christian life. Now, here in Romans 5, the end of Romans 5, we get how sin came into the world, the federal headship of Adam and Christ, and how life and death reign in these two representatives. This is kind of our outline for today. That's where Paul's it's going. Uh, but this, this raises a question. Um, two weeks ago, unfortunately, Kim's not in here. This is the the joke if you were here two weeks ago. But wait, there's more. Uh, Two weeks ago with the, but wait, there's more. We saw all of these benefits in the first part of Romans 5. We've been justified. We have peace with God. We stand in this grace. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in sufferings. We, We know that suffering produces endurance, character, hope. It does not put us to shame. We see that Christ died for the ungodly. We shall be saved by His life. That we have now received reconciliation. The question that I want to ask you and to answer is, with all of this, why does Paul now go back to talking about Adam and sin? Doesn't it feel like he's kind of turned the corner a little bit? And... All these benefits of justification doesn't seem like it naturally flows right into the Christian life. Feels like he's backtracking back into sin in Adam again. I thought we already covered that in chapters 1 through 3. That was was very depressing. Now let's get on to the better things in the Christian life. Um, Why does he do this? What do you think? Any thoughts? Guesses? All right, I'll I'll just tell you. (laughs) Two reasons. Why does he jump back to Adam and sin? Well, the first is that way back in chapter 4, we saw that to be guilty and condemned is to have sin imputed to you. Sin counted against you. We noted that language of imputation. 
And to be forgiven is to not have sin counted against you, imputed against you, imputed to you. So Paul also, in, he kind of alluded to the imputation of righteousness that is received by faith. So we have this imputation of sin mentioned. We have this imputation of righteousness mentioned, received by faith. So now he needs to explain that. More specifically, and he's going to hit on both, but most specifically, what is the righteousness that is imputed to you? He's got to explain Adam if he's going to explain Christ. That's the first reason he's jumping to sin in Adam. The second reason, though, with the Adam-Christ parallel, we see how we receive the wages or the, um, uh, the merits, the accomplishments of our federal head. This shows us how we are united with Christ and receive all the benefits and blessings that he has earned for us. And this is what opens the door to move on to sanctification in the very next chapter. Right? If you'll remember the first part of chapter 6, as believers we have been baptized into his death. We've been raised with Him to walk in newness of life. There's union with Christ is the focus and the point. So that's the important context, which gives us an understanding or foundation or framework to understand why He's going to what He goes to here at the end of chapter 5. The connection between imputation and how we live. The connection between our federal headship, and how we live. The devastating effects of Adam's sin and the ramifications of that in how we live, or the blessings of Christ's righteousness and the implications of that in how we live. So, That's the context. And that's what he's going to explain. And that's his transition from justification to sanctification, which is chapter 6, 7, and 8. If you want to understand sanctification, hey, we all want to live for Jesus, right? We all want to obey. We all want to to be conformed to His image. We all want to walk obediently in the Christian life and bring glory to Him, if we're going to understand how we get there from justification, how we're saved, to how we live, we've got to understand Jesus Christ and our union with Him. Any questions, comments before we dive in? Exactly. Yeah. 
Exactly. And that's the point of this chapter. Absolutely. If we want a representative to act on our behalf, Christ on the cross, um, we have to accept that a representative has already acted on our behalf in Adam in sin. And uh, they both go together. They both stand or fall together. Very good. Well, let's read uh, Romans 5, 12 through 14. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing that we're going to be really tight on time, so I'm just going to read it uh, quickly. Romans 5, 12. Just as sin came into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. I want you to think about this verse. We're just going to take these three verses one by one. Therefore, as sin came into the world, through one man, death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The first part is very clear. Sin and death came into the world through one man, Adam. Nobody disagrees that with that, right? If, as long as you, of course, accept the scriptures. But what does it mean that death spread to all men because all sinned? That's, that's the hinge on which this chapter turns. What does it mean? Does this refer to how all people commit individual sins? Death spread to all men because all sinned. Well, we've all sinned. We, we acknowledge that, right? No. That's not the point. That's not what he's saying. He's speaking of the one sin of Adam in which we all share in. His one act of sin on behalf of us all. So be careful that you, that you understand this. Death spread to all men, not because all men sinned. Death spread to all men because in Adam all men sinned. That's his point. That's what he's saying. This is a doctrine of original sin. When Adam sinned, because he is our federal head, we all sinned with him and in him. We don't just follow in his sin, we sinned with him in some mysterious way. Well, okay, that's going to take some explanation, Pastor. Well, let's jump into that. Um, first note that you know, if you look at it, particularly in, in, in Greek, you'll, you'll, you'll notice that, that verse 12 coincides with verse 18 and 19. And they're linked by these just as and so then clauses. Um, if you look at them both, you know, Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world. And then he goes on kind of a brief, brief excursus. And then he comes back to summarize with the same, uh, the same point in verse 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trans, 
trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. So that, that, that's the first thing I want to point out, and, and that will become clear as we work through this. But verse 12 is linked with verses 18 and 19. They, uh, verse 18 19 is an explanation of verse 12. But wait, there's more. Kim's not in here again. He was just... <laughs> that verse 12 coincides with 18 19 is, is what we might call the big picture perspective. Um, but the statement, we all sin in Adam, is, is difficult nonetheless. And in verse 13 and 17, again, I told you we're getting a little technical this morning. Verse 13 and 17 is his explanation of that statement before he comes back to summarize it in 18 and 19. So here we have in verse 13. Death spread to all men because all sinned. You said that, Paul, now explain it. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. All right. Does this mean that before the law was given, there was no law? I guess that's the first thing we should probably try to answer. Sin was not counted where there is no law. What does that mean, there, was, there is no law? No law whatsoever? Excuse me? It wasn't written, exactly. The, okay, but he's talking... Um, let me see the context here. He, he's talking... If you look at verse 14, he's talking... He's talking between Adam and Moses. So after Adam, before Moses. Was there no law? Well, we know like Cain and Abel, Abraham, God gave commandments, right? So there is some sort of law. We know from Romans 1 and 2 that there is a natural law that condemns us all. So he's not saying that there was no standard whatsoever, that there's no commandments of God, there's no revelation of God, there's no law of God. So what does he mean? Well, let's jump back and think about the connection between Mount Sinai and the garden. The connection between the law given to Adam and the law given by the hand of Moses. What is the commonality between the law given to Adam and the law given to Moses? Commonality? They both come from God. But what's particular about Chandler? They're given to one person. They're given to one. Mm, eh. With Moses, I, I wouldn't call Moses a federal head. 
But that's up for debate. Yes. Do this and live. Do this and die. So what Paul's saying, there's no law like the law given to Adam and the law given to Moses. And what was the context, what was the framework of the law given to both of those? They were both represented a covenant of works. A covenant of works. Do this and live. Don't do this, you will be cursed. Now, I know sometimes we talk about the law of Moses, not, not we Baptists, but in reform circles, talk about the law of Moses being an administration of the covenant of grace. Well, even still, you have Deuteronomy, you know, uh, 27, 28, 29, you have the blessings and the curses clearly laid out. You have the fact that Israel broke the covenant and was cast out of the land. If you don't think the Mosaic Law was a cover of works, you've got to answer the question, why did God send them into exile? There, there's a covenant of works in play here. And so um, Paul is saying that there was no law in the covenant of works since. There was no law of covenant of works between Adam and between Moses. Under Adam and under Moses... If one sinned, God said, you will die. That was very, very clear. But Paul just said, death spread even though there was no covenant of works. Do this, don't do this, and die. What's the point then? Verse 14. Yet, even though there's no law, there's no covenant of works, death reigned. Death reigned even those over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. There was no law, yet death reigned between two covenant of works. Death reigned even though they didn't personally eat the tree and break the covenant of works like Adam did. And so the main question is why did death reign? Why did people between Adam and Moses die? That's the question that he's raising. And ultimately the big picture in this is you can't just look at people individually and explain why they die. Because as individuals considered individually... They weren't or they aren't under an explicit covenant of works that demands death. That's the point. Maybe if I was to frame this, this is a sensitive topic. I, I want to be very careful and respectful with my wording here. But maybe another way to frame it in a way that hits closer to home for us in our age, is um, why, do, why are there miscarriages? Why do babies 
often sometimes tragically die in the womb before they even see the light of day, before they can do anything good or bad? That's kind of the question, another way of framing this very same question. Because if our answer is, well, you sinned, and it's your sin for which you die, it's your sin which brings the the anger and judgment of God upon you, that a baby doesn't live to sin, and yet they still die. They can still die. Why is that so? That's what Paul's moving to explain. The reality of death cannot be explained simply based upon what I do and what you do and what individuals do. There, is, there are bigger things in play here. It's probably easy to see at this point why the doctrine of original sin as, as expressed in Reformed Protestant theology um, is hated by the world. Um, often it is the first step into Protestant liberalism. People can't deal with the fact that God would hold someone else accountable for someone else's disobedience. And so they deny it, and it just leads to a denial ultimately of depravity and denial of the gospel. Karen? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. There was, there was a change on so many more levels than we're aware of. Um, my, one of my favorite professors, Dr. Brian Estelle, used to say, uh, I think he was, he was channeling Meredith Klein here, but um, <laughs> he used to say, um, did Adam stump his toe in the garden? <laughs> and the answer would be no, it was paradise. But, but the, he would say, why did he not stump his toe? Was it because the rock wasn't there in his path? Well, no, the rock was there. The reason that he never stumped his toe on that rock is because God's loving providence kept him from ever doing that. And that's part of the fall and the curse is the fact that now there is the, there's not that all-encompassing providence that keeps us from any and every sorrow, any and every discomfort. It's all-encompassing in, in the, the, the fall, into sin, in death, and chaos. That's good. Well, we got to move quickly. So, I, I know that was technical. I know that was a lot. Um, but if you have any questions about it, again, the main point 
is Paul is going back to, in fact, if I'm skip all the way back to this. Sin came into the world through one man, death through one man, because all sinned in one man. Sin was in the world before the law of Moses was given, but sin wasn't counted because they weren't under a covenant of works, and yet they still died, even though they didn't sin after, according to the law of Moses, even though they didn't sin according to the law of Adam. But death still reigned. Why is that? He moves on then. He's going to explain this more. He moves to contrast. He, he, he's going to prove his point about original sin by running to the gospel and proving the point about the gospel and the federal headship of Christ. But the free gift is not like the trespass, Romans 5.15. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more having the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. No, the free gift is not like the trespass. Again, he's he's looking at one trespass. One trespass. One sin, Adam's sin, is the answer to why all men die. One sin. All throughout this passage. The trespass. The one sin is of Adam is the explanation for death. And again, I, I mentioned this earlier, but if you just look at question 19 of our catechism, did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? Well, the covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but also for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. And if you'll notice... The bold there, the catechism, cites Romans 5.12, which we just considered. All of us sinned in Adam and fell in Adam, even though we had not yet been born. But all this has been an excursus to the main point. He's not going to dive into the details of sin and depravity. He's already done that. He really mentions it because he wants to get to Christ. And he wants to show how Adam, Christ is the second Adam. With the Adam-Christ parallel then, what we're getting is the doctrine of federal headship. He wants to talk about Christ and the benefits that come from Christ. So he brings up Adam and in this we get this overarching doctrine of federal headship. You guys know what that is? Federal headship. Who can give an answer, definition, summary? 
Somebody else. Federal headship, what is it? Representative. Representative. So one person acting on behalf of others. Yeah, that's it. Um, Nehemiah Cox says this. Nehemiah Cox being, we believe, the primary editor of our confession of faith. When God has made covenants in which either mankind in general or some select number of men in particular have been involved, it has pleased him first to transact with some public person, head, or representative for all others that should be involved in them. God does not deal with us simply as individuals. He does, but not only as individuals. If you look at the covenants in Scripture, they all have a federal representative. Abraham. If you were connected to Abraham, ethnically, you benefited from the covenant made with him. Uh, the Mosaic Covenant probably, I would say, is David is a federal head. It just comes later. So goes the king. So goes the people. If you read the book of uh, the books of uh, the Chronicles in, in First and Second Kings, you see that. The king represents the people. If the king sinned, the, the, the nation was punished. And fell into apostasy. The king was righteous. Then righteousness dwelled in the uh, 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 was prominent in the land. Adam, Christ, one person representing the people. And so, in that sense, covenant membership is always determined by federal headship. Uh, to determine your interest in a given covenant, you've got to ask. Um, do I belong to the federal head? Did that federal head act on my behalf? And all of the human race can be divided up unto two representatives because Abrahamic and the Mosaic and the Noahic are all earthly covenants that deal with earthly realities. But the two spiritual realities, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, are all Summarized under Adam and under Christ. Every single person is either under the headship of Adam or under the headship of Christ. There is no in-between. J.V. Fesco says this, God has covenantally appointed two representatives, Adam and Christ, who determine the destinies of those whom they represent, and he cites Romans 5.19. Beneath Paul's simple statement lies the doctrine of imputation, namely, that we receive death in Adam, but gain life in Christ. So, that's what he sets forth right here. He's throwing out federal headship. Because it explains both the sin that he just detailed, original sin, as well as the benefits of redemption that he's moving toward in the next large section in this epistle. 
So he lays out and says, if you're under Adam, you receive these benefits. If you're under Christ, you receive these benefits. And he brings it to a conclusion here in 18 through 21. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, again, one trespass led to condemnation and death for all men. Because Adam acted on behalf of all mankind. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. You may say, well, one act of righteousness, what does that refer to? Well, obviously he's talking about Christ. Um, I, would, I would argue and say the one act is just a way of summarizing how Christ fulfilled the covenant in our place. It's not one thing like going to the cross. It is the culmination of everything that fulfilled you know, with, with one sin, Adam broke the covenant. Um, but it was more than just one act. It was his whole being. It was inside and outside. He sinned against God. Uh, well, Christ's obedience is more than just one simple act of obedience, but it's his whole being, his whole, his whole life, his whole accomplishment of the, of the covenant of works on our behalf. One act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here we have the contrasts. In Adam, there's sin, there's judgment, there's condemnation, there's death. But in Christ we have justification, which is our declaration of forgiveness. We have grace, we have righteousness, and we have eternal life. And so the conclusion, verse 20 and 21 Sin and death reigned between Adam and Moses. But the law wasn't given to fix that. And that's part of his thesis too. The law came to increase the trespass. Don't run to the law to fix your guilt in Adam, is what he's saying. The law came to expose our guilt in Adam, to inflame our guilt in Adam, to highlight it, to put it at the forefront, to make it obvious, so that we would see that sin and death reigns in us. And the law still serves that purpose in our day. We have the reading of the law each week to try to bring that out in our liturgy. The law came to increase the trespass that we might see clearly, even in the redeemed, the reign of grace that is in us in Christ. So, <clears throat> conclusion. Put the pieces of the puzzle together. Adam, original sin, depravity, Moses' law, 
And the obedient life of Christ, how He fulfilled the law, His death, His resurrection, they're not just abstract doctrines. Oh yeah, it's important that we you know, affirm that. It's important we affirm that. They all come together to form the beautiful picture of the gospel. And they all stand and fall together. As Mark mentioned at the very beginning, you, you gave the thesis right from the beginning. Like if, if you want to receive the benefits of Jesus Christ on your behalf, you, you have to understand and recognize and acknowledge that, that Adam acted on your behalf to begin with. You can't say it's not fair that Adam acted and then I reaped the consequences, but then say, oh, I want Christ to act for me and me receive the benefits. Stand and falls together. Imputation of Adam and the imputation of Christ go together. It's part of the big picture. It's part of the pieces of the puzzle that give us the gospel. And if you deny or undermine one, then you deny, you, you threaten to undermine them all. And so, application maybe would be, you know, these are precious truths. They ought to, to lead us to worship, to, to adore, uh, to stand in awe. Like at the end of Romans 11, where, where, where Paul just breaks down the doxology. Oh, the wisdom, the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His ways. And even more than that, we will see how they directly relate to the Christian life and sanctification and how we live. Because our union with Christ is the soil from which all of the, the, the fruit of the Christian life is born. And so you have to understand union if you want to understand how to be and live like a good Christian, to put it in those terms. All right. That's all I got. Thank you for letting me speed through it. Uh, we'll give two minutes for questions, and that's it. Any questions, any comments? Karen? I heard a simple illustration of sports teams. You know, you're sitting in the, in the stands, cheering for your team, your team wins, and you say, oh, I won, I won. But you weren't out there participating, but you're still claiming. Oh, yeah. So that was a, an illustration to kind of help. Absolutely, that's great. Yeah, you're not actually part of the team, but, but you know. Well, I mean, the same could be said of, of in some respects, a family. Um, you know, um, if, if, if one member of the family prospers, the whole, man, the whole family typically does. If one member suffers, the whole, the whole family suffers. Um, same is true of a church, but uh, absolutely. A, a great way. It, we're so individualist, uh, uh, individualistic as American Christians that we often lose sight of that. And we emphasize so much personal salvation, which is obviously very, very, very important. But not often we do that discounting the fact that we are saved as part of a body and part of a community and um, salvation there is a corporate aspect to salvation as well that's good any other questions comments that one yes yeah so this is Obviously, there's more than this, but this is what's in this chapter, what Paul brings out right here and says specifically. These are what you get in Adam. These are what you get in Christ. 
and obviously look to our Savior and to his representative of us for our hope and security and salvation. Hans? Uh, the best answer, that's a great question, Hans asked, well, we still have sin in us. We still have the remnants of Adam in us. Yes, we do, but notice what he says here. Verse 21, 20 and 21, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. The picture of sanctification, which he's going to expand upon, is the fact that the old man in you is dying, and the new man in you is, is growing and, 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 and is, is being renewed day by day and is going to lead to an increase in um, uh, reflection of the new man, in the new attributes of the new man. That's the progress of sanctification that increases all the more leading to eternal life. Sin is slowly and surely put to death. Grace reigns and triumphs and the new man is brought to life. And, and that's really what he goes to answer in the next few chapters. So he's thinking along with you. That's good. <laughs> good question. We've got to end. Uh, if you have another question, come, come talk to me um, afterwards. I'll be happy to answer. But let's, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, we pray, Lord, uh, as we bow, as we hear these truths, we bow before you as, Lord, our infinitely wise God. And, Lord, at times we, we don't fully understand your ways. But we thank you for the life that we have in Christ. And we thank you chiefly because we know that we are unable to fulfill that covenant. We are unable in and of ourselves to obey and earn eternal life. We are unable in and of ourselves to pay for our own sin. Uh, Father, uh, the, the doctrine of Christ's federal headship is very precious to us. We pray, though, that as we think about these things, that you would, you would impress it upon our hearts and upon our minds and show us, Lord, how, how these things impact our day-to-day -day Christian life and our understanding of the gospel. We do long to to grow more and more after the image of the new man. We long to put sin to death. We long for grace to reign in us. We pray through your spirit that you would use your word to bring this about in us little by little, even a little bit more after today. We pray, Lord, you would inhabit our praises in the next hour and bless our worship in Christ's name. Amen.